No, let's, let's go before the Lord. God in heaven, we, we pause. Lord, we, we laugh as brothers and sisters in Christ because we thank you for the joy that we have in you. We thank you for the privilege it is to be brothers and sisters, one another unto the Lord. And Lord, we thank you for this great joy it is to gather and worship. And Lord, particularly now as we come to sit under your word. Lord, nothing apart from your word by way of your spirit will happen in our lives of eternal value. So Lord, we ask today that even now as we turn to this most important passage in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, Lord, that you would Lord, open our eyes to see wondrous things. Our story last week with the golden calf incident, where we were challenged all of us to reflect upon our hearts and the idols that we tend to run to, the things that we tend to wrongfully believe will ultimately satisfy us other than Christ. And Lord, we, we want to turn that corner. I know we do. So Lord, today we need to turn that corner by gazing upon the glory of who you are and all of your person and all of your beauty and all of your majesty revealed to us in Christ, particularly the Christ upon the cross. So Lord, I do pray that you would guard our hearts and minds Guard me as a preacher. Help me to stand behind your word and be clear. And Lord, I do pray that um, the words that we hear from our text today would fall upon hearts ready to receive, ready to be molded and shaped by your hand so that we could walk. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Begin with a, a longer quote this morning. It's an older quote, so it has a little bit of language that might be not completely easy for us to hear, but I'm going to put it on the screen because I want us to hear it. So 19th century uh, minister Thomas Chalmers in his a book entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection says this, There are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love for the world, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity so that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw from its regards for an object that is not worthy of it, or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign from an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to ex- for the constitution of our nature, from the constitution of our nature, the former method is altogether incompetent and ineffectual. And the latter method will alone suffice long affection that domineers over it. Now last week, as I said, we, we traversed the lowest point in the Exodus story. Breaking the first three commandments and trampling the covenant they had made with God, the people rebelled in idolatrous worship of a golden calf that they in fact crafted with their own hands. Their hearts were given over to a wrong affection. Something, sadly, we far too often know to be true about each one of us. For the people of Israel to simply withdraw their affection from the wrongful worship of the calf would not work. The only hope for the rescue and recovery of Israel's heart was for them to exchange their old distorted affection for this golden calf for a new, proper, greater affection for the glory of the Lord. 
which is what we find in chapters 33 and 34 this morning of Exodus. Last week, Exodus 32 forced us, as I said, to confront the idols of our hearts. The text challenged us not to conceal our idols, confront and confess those things believing that they will ultimately satisfy us. But if last week was about confrontation and confession, this morning has to be about correction. It's about finding the only soul's satisfying solution to the wrong desires of our heart. It's about conquering our lesser desires with the greater desire in Christ alone. We need, each one of us this morning, need the expulsive power of a new... And that is what we find here in these two chapters. Now, if you've been following through our series, you know that a confession is due here on my part. We're not going to finish Exodus today. We'll do that next Sunday. As I said, we, we, we were going to finish this morning. I got lost in deep waters this week, and there was no way I was going to swim to the top and make it. So we will finish up next week, beginning in chapter 34, verse 10. We'll stop at verse 9 today and finish the rest of our Exodus series. But I want to give you my main idea this morning as I do and spend our time unpacking it. Here it is. Living faithfully as the people of God, the man's desiring the presence of God by beholding the glory of God in Christ. So living faithfully as the people of God. That's what the people of the Lord. And they've had a a major misstep last week, but as they continue to try to faithfully follow as the people of God, this is going to demand that they desire the presence of God over everything else, and that's not going to happen unless they behold the glory of God and for us in Christ. So I have two headings in my text this week. I'm going to try to keep it really simple. It'll be desiring the presence of God first and then beholding the glory of God second. So first, desiring the presence of God. Chapter 33 begins with what seems uh, to be good news. In light of Moses' intercession from last week, instead of consuming the people. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff neck to depart and lead the people into the promised land. Furthermore, he, he promises to send an angel of protection who is going to go before them and drive out the nations so they can take possession of the land, which he describes this land as a land flowing with milk and honey. But there's a but at the end of verse 3, right? But I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people. So while God promises His protection, God promises His blessing, a distance, is now present in the text. Notice instead of my people, God refers to them as the people. And it's talked about my angel of the Lord going with you. He now says what? An angel or the angel. So due to their rebellious hearts described as a stiff-necked animal, 
probably similar to the calf that they worshipped, God puts a distance between Him and His people. Though He promised to bless His people with protection and abundance, He says, I'm not going to dwell with you. And in verse 4, Israel responds to this disastrous news. Look at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornament. People, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. In a sign of repentance and really dependence upon the Lord, the people stripped themselves of their ornaments, their jewelry. Some commentators believe these ornaments were linked to maybe some pagan practices that that the, the items maybe elicited the protection of pagan gods, a common practice amongst us. We know that the removal of these items, see, we see Moses's, Moses continuing in his role as mediator of his people. Verse 7. Now Moses, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. Now we can't confuse this with the tabernacle. Now, we've heard the instructions of the tabernacle, but next week, this has to be a similar but smaller, probably personal tent for Moses to meet with God outside the camp. That verse alone tells you it's not the tabernacle because the tabernacle is in the center of the camp. This is outside the camp. Verse 7, And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each one stand at his door, at his tent door and watch Moses enter the tent. The, cloud, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. So when Moses went into the tent, the people stood and watched in their tents. And when Moses entered, the glory of the Lord depicted through this, that Moses was speaking to God, and the text says they would worship, probably meaning they would pray. Verse 11, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not apart, depart from the tent. So Moses, he, he, meet, he, he met with God face to face, the text says. And the text says. What an amazing description. Now we know this doesn't mean that he, he saw God physically. We know later we read that no one can see God and live in verse 20. What's being communicated here is that, is that God shared a direct and Intimate communication with Moses, as two friends do. And why is that important? Mediator. And that's exactly what we're going to see Moses picking up and doing in verses 12 through 16, continuing to mediate on behalf of the people. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up... Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, for, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So he pleads on behalf of the people. First, for God's help. That God would show Moses his ways that he might know the Lord. After the people committed this great sin, breaking the covenant, Moses is wondering, what's next? Show me your ways, O Lord. What do you have in mind here, Lord, is what Moses' request is. Promises and his purpose is similar to what he did last, night, uh, last week in verse 13. He says, consider too that 
This nation is your people. Now the word nation there is no doubt an intentional reference back to 194, where God promised His people would be a holy nation and a royal priesthood. If your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here, he says. Moses says there is no reason to go up. There is no such thing as a holy nation. There is no such thing as a royal priesthood if your presence is not with us. For to do so would be to forfeit the Israelites' purpose in redemptive history and simply just that I have found favor in your sight. I and your people... Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Notice Moses again connects himself to the people twice. I and your people, he says. Moses knows, as do the people, that they're distinct. That is their only hope of living out their calling. That is their only hope of being a a holy nation. That is the only hope of continuing to make God's to be to, to in fact be the people of God demands that they be marked by the presence of God. And now, while there's not many places, there hasn't been at least many places in the narrative where we're where we can look to Israel as an example to follow, this is one for sure. We find one here, no doubt. His protection and even a land flowing with milk and honey. But apart from the presence of God, the people refuse. And Moses follows suit and represents them and says, we cannot go. They understand that God has redeemed them for a purpose of living a specific way in the world, which cannot happen apart from God's presence. Again, to be the people of God is to... question I ask myself this week in this text I'll ask you is this how you would describe your life a desire for the presence of God would an outsider describe us that way as the hill church that we are a people who we desire God living faithfully as the people of God living out our calling requires us being like Israel here We must be desperate. We must desire the presence of God in our lives. Do you? Do we? Or do we more desire what we think God can give us? In other words, do we desire His protection? Do we we desire His provision? His milk and His honey for our lives? Apart from His very presence in our lives. Now, I know most of us the prosperity gospel being that the good news of the gospel is about making God making us healthy and wealthy and prosperous. We rightfully reject that, but we would be foolish not to recognize there is a bit of the prosperity gospel in all of us. We all have a tendency to desire God's provision, God's protection, apart from His presence in our life. And how do I know that? Because my prayer life exposes that. And so does yours. Prayers more for God's provision and protection in your life or to see God work in your life. To see God work in your family's life. To see God work in your neighbor's life. In your co-workers. 
Do we spend more time praying that you would be protected from the world or radically transformed to be parents? You pray that your kids would be safe. Or you pray that your kids would be securely surrendered to Christ and living faithfully for Him, no matter what that looks like. We have to learn from Israel here. If only Israel would have learned from Israel here. Because sadly, Israel, they will seek their kingdom agenda over the Lord's. They want His protection. They want His provision. They want the land flowing with milk and honey. But they want it for their ends and their purposes. There's a danger here of both wanting the provision and protection of God apart from His presence. And there's a danger here to God and be the people of God apart from the presence of God. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 105.4 says, Seek the Lord in His strength. What does that mean? Seek the Lord in His strength. Well, the next line tells us, Seek His presence, seek his presence continually. Look, everybody wants to go to heaven. I don't know very many people. I know that's an overstatement, but you don't find many people who don't want to go to heaven. But how many people want God? Everybody desires the perks and the privileges. God's presence through His very person. A faith that sustains is a faith that's fixed on God. But please know, I ask them at myself this week first, do you want the blessings of God or do you want God? Do you want God to give you what you desire? Or are you willing to sacrifice for what He, as the people of God, demands? Desiring desperately the presence of God. But, Pastor Jimmy, what if you want, but you honestly don't often want more of God? Well, the rest of our text helps us out with that. As I begin with, for that to be, where is that found? It's found in beholding the glory of God. Moses is not done yet. So let's move down to the second point, beholding the glory of God. In verse 17, God does in fact to go with His people. He says, I will do it. But Moses won't stop there. He's not satisfied. 17, and the Lord said to Moses, the very thing that you have spoken, I will do. 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. What a request, right? He desires to see the person and power of God. Now it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing request and really incredible coming from Moses. For, for he is the one who had, had to take his sandals off. For he encountered the glory of God at the burning bush. God revealed his great covenant name, front row seat, to the revelation of God's glory through the, the, the mighty acts and the plagues. Many of which Moses brought about, came about through Moses' very staff. It didn't happen until Moses acted. Moses touched the waters of the Red Sea only to see them part. And the people walked through on dry ground. And yet Moses, the one who was just described as meeting with Yahweh face to face as a... And yet he's here requesting more. Moses is a glutton for God's glory. Give me more, God. 
Moses cries. With every taste of God's splendor he enjoyed, Moses only wanted more. God's glory was sore. And God honors Moses' request with both a positive and a negative response in verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. God promises to make his goodness pass before Moses. What a goodness pass before Moses. And then he will proclaim his name, the Lord, Yahweh. Now don't miss that here. Moses requests to see God's glory. And God's response is, I will proclaim to you my name. And God makes certain him doing this is, is purely an act of mercy in any way. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'll show mercy to whom I will show mercy. The reality is for us to know anything of God. Anything of God. is solely an act of His divine grace towards us. God is under no obligation to make Himself known to anyone, especially sinners like us. But yet He does. The Creator of this world is an act of His grace to us. After responding to the, in the affirmative to Moses, this is followed with a negative in verse 20. But He said, you cannot see My face. For how? For, for, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on a rock, cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God promises to provide a, a gracious cut passes by. Now, obviously God doesn't have a hand, a back, or a face. This language is employed here to speak of God's power, God's purity, and His holiness, which Moses could not, could only be given a glimpse of. So instead of God's face, Moses will see His back, representing less than the full... We understand this, right? You would never say you've truly seen a person apart from looking them in the face, right? And we hear this often, right? Like people giving witness and testimony and... They saw a person running away from behind them. They say, well, I, I saw them, but I didn't really see them. Right? So until we look at someone in the face, we haven't seen them. As sinful human beings, Moses, as sinful, the fullness of God and live. But he is allowed a gracious glance here. Described as seeing his back. But even more than that, this glance is a comfort to follow, especially six and seven are two of the most important in the Bible. We're going to find them repeated and referenced everywhere. From the Psalms to the minor prophets as a depiction of who God is. This is what Jonah says when he goes to Nineveh. And he's angry. He says, I don't want to go there and proclaim your name. Why? Because I know who you are. And you're going to, you're going to cause these people to repent and turn to you. But that was based upon who he knew God to be in these verses. He says, I know you are that God. And, and given our theme of this book, though, the God who is making himself known, this verse becomes all the more important. Up to this point, God has made himself known through the burning bush, through the plagues. But now we find the fullest revelation of God in Exodus. The great I am is now explained with this self-declaration of God's character, of the essence of his person. The Lord said to Moses, look at it, verse 1, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, 
And I will write on the tablets the word ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with me and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds get on like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. God tells Moses, rise early in the morning and come up to the mountain again. Come alone, Moses. This is so important. And in fact, so dangerous. They don't even they could die if they see this, Moses. I want you to get two more tablets and meet me on the mountain, he says. And the Lord graciously provides a copy of the law outlining the conditions of the covenant again. But then he goes further by announcing and proclaiming his name. And that's the point here. God's glory. God's glory is bound up with His attributes, with His perfections, with His glorious nature. So I want you to hear this. Verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34 are absolutely indispensable if you want to have a true understanding of who the God of the Bible is like. The most. And what in fact He's like. And you cannot understand the God of the Bible. You cannot understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ apart from understanding these verses here. It's like trying to understand mathematics without numbers. Or what in in fact an ocean is when you don't know what water is. In verse 7, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. And the children's children. The third and fourth generation. The Lord begins his covenant name to Moses. Revealed at the burning bush. Yahweh. Yahweh. He says the Lord. The Lord. Making clear how everything that follows are divine attributes of Him. The redeeming, covenant-keeping God. And first we see God is compassionate or or tender-hearted mercy. This word is related to the Greek word that is associated with the compassion of Jesus. It's a word of the gut or a word of the belly. God is compassionate from deep within Himself. Second, He's gracious as well. He cares about our situation. Kind, gentle, never harsh, petty or cruel. He responds favorably to cries of help and forgiveness. Thirdly, He's slow to anger. God is not hot-headed. He's patient. God's never in a hurry. He's never rash. Think of someone with a short fuse. It's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is patient and long-suffering in response to our sin. Fourthly, it says He abounds, He overflows in steadfast covenant love. And this word speaks of, of God's loyal love, His particular love, His covenant love for His people. It's often asked, or maybe we could even say it's often stated. And while, of course, in one sense, There is a sense in which God loves every person. 
whom he created in his image. That's not, in fact, the way the Bible speaks of God's love, though. God has a a special kind of loyal love and affection for his people, which is being communicated here. God's love is never vague at his people. Look, when a mom hears a cry of a child and she runs into a room to see it's not her child, she doesn't like walk away and say, who cares? <laughs> it's not mine. Big deal. She has compassion in one sense for a child, for every child. But it's a very, very, very different scene. It's a very, very different response of love when a mom walks into a room to see, in fact, her child is the one crying out. So while it's true, God loves everyone in a way. His love abounds in steadfast covenant love to His own. As a believer, you're His. Whom He particularly loves and desires to comfort and care for. He abounds in steadfast love. Fifthly, God not only abounds in steadfast love, He abounds in faithfulness. God keeps His word. He never fails. Though we abound in fickleness, He abounds in faithfulness. And this is who God is. Because of who He is, He responds in some very distinct ways. He keeps His steadfast covenant love for thousands. And He also forgives iniquity. All-encompassing language here in reference to sin. He gives us all the words that we hear in our Bible. He speaks of iniquity, transgression, and sin. This speaks to the guilt. This speaks to the shame. This speaks to the offense. This speaks to the wrongdoing of sin. Making clear there is nothing you have done that God's... There is no aspect of your rebellion too grave to be covered by the faithfulness, the forgiveness of God. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you are paralyzed by sins in the past. There is no sin, no offense appropriately to Him. And you often, we often put ourselves in the place of God by withholding forgiveness from ourselves when God desires to cover it with His mercy. But secondly, I want you to see something here. We cannot miss how God revealed when they first left Egypt, right? Every attribute of God here comes as a response to sin. God is merciful when we sin. He is gracious when we sin. His covenant loyal love abounds in light of our sin. His faithfulness stands in contrast to our faithlessness. He is good to us, lavishing His forgiveness towards us Due to our sin. So in other words, without a robust knowledge of sin, you cannot know really anything of who God actually is. And this is the great tragedy of much of our Christian subculture today. We don't want to talk about sin. Of course, we'll admit we're not perfect. And that we make mistakes. But it's thought of as being inconsiderate, condescending, and even unloving to explain to people the Bible's teaching on the depth of our sin. And the it's because we love one another. 
It's because I love you and desire that you would truly know and experience the fullness and the beauty of the glory of God in Christ that I tell you what the Bible says, that you're a wicked sinner, that your heart is a, it runs in rebellion to God. Because in minimizing the truth of, about sin, we minimize the glory and the beauty of God. Look, a cure for cancer is a great thing. Cure for cancer would be a glorious thing when a loved one, when a child, or when yourself actually has cancer. You see, until we see ourselves as sinners, rebels before God, and all of our iniquity and unrighteousness, we will never taste and see the glory of God in Christ Jesus. It's in the midst of our sin. And in response to our rebellion, that God is gracious. And merciful. That God is slow towards anger towards us, which we deserve. That He's about every time we say we're going to do something, we turn away and don't do it. No matter every time we say we're going to commit ourselves to the Lord again in our fickleness, we walk away. God is faithful towards us. His love is steadfast towards us. In the worst moment of your life, in the darkest place of your soul, God is and remains exactly what He says He is here. However, in verse 7, we learn there's one thing God will not and cannot do. He will by no means clear the guilt. Children's children to the third and fourth generation. That generational emphasis there means, I think, simply that as sin continues, God's justice continues. This isn't punishment for sin. This is a demonstration that as far as sin continues, God's justice will continue. Now, things are going great up until this point, right? I mean, you said you, you ended up cutting the sermon short. Maybe you should have just cut it short there. We should have just stopped at verse 6 with all this grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness. But we have to move on to this justice stuff. Maybe we should ask the question, which one actually is it? Is the Lord, is Yahweh merciful? Is he a God of mercy or is he a God of justice? Which one is he? I found it interesting, a pastor I was reading this week said this line of thinking, which I think is a common one, exposes how we tend to view God as very one-dimensional. We like God to be like a cartoonish character. It's not either as the, he says this, as either the clipboard God or the cookie God. The clipboard God is always looking over our shoulder, always pointing out our faults and waiting to strike us down. The cookie God is always there to affirm us in every action. Give us a handout. Cookies, right? You messed up, you blew it. It's okay, have a cookie. Neither of these capture the God revealed to us in the Bible. Neither of these capture the God revealed to us in verses 6 and 7 here. You see, because mercy doesn't make sense without justice. How can God be both merciful towards sinners and yet Say, by no means clear the guilty. Is one stronger than the other? Is one more important to God than the other? Well, that won't work. We get into all kinds of problems there. The Bible says God is perfectly just, and yet He's full of mercy in every way. In other words, He is in one what He has to be in the other. Have this relationship of tug of war within God. God's not bipolar. He's merciful, yes. He's just, Amen. 
So there must be something of even more ultimate concern for the Lord, which in fact expresses itself through His mercy and His judgment. What could that be? Verse 5 tells us. And verse 5 affirms what the entire book of Exodus is about as we've been looking at it. The name of Yahweh. The name of Yahweh being known. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The glory of the name of Yahweh is what's most ultimate. Upholding His own name and His own glory is God's chief concern. And from that we find His great purposes of showing mercy and upholding justice by punishing the guilty. The God of the Bible is not one-dimensional. He reveals Himself, His love, and His justice. That is consistent with what we have seen thus far in Exodus. The same time, He extended mercy to His people and judgment to Pharaoh. In the golden calf incident last week, He struck down 3,000 in His justice while extending mercy to those who turned to Him. He's a God of justice and a God of mercy. The essence of God's name requires the majestic display of both His mercy and His justice. Which, brothers and sisters, leads us directly to the glory of God in the cross of Christ. The Apostle Paul wrestled with this same tension in Romans chapter 3. Turn there, please. Romans chapter 3. I don't have that verse on the the screens here, but I want you to turn there. In Romans chapter 1, he made very clear that every single one of us in this room, Jews and Gentiles, are in our sin and are ungodly before God. The wages of sin is death, right? He made clear that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. How can God show mercy to sinners? How can He, how can he forgive rebellious, wicked people and yet still be just? The question the question. Paul is asking us, how can verse 6, how can verse 7 of Exodus 34 both be true? What's Paul's answer? Because Christ died on the cross. That God might be just and the justifier of the ungodly, he says. God has not cleared the guilty. God has not winked at any of your sin. God has not shrugged His shoulders at any of our rebellion. He doesn't sweep any sin under the rug and just move on. It had to be paid in full. On the cross, justice and mercy meet. Good is made known. If you want to want the presence of God more in your life, you must see God in all His glory. And seeing the, God, the glory of God means beholding the beauty of Christ and the splendor of His majesty on the cross. That the justice of God do your sin was laid upon Christ so that the mercy of God would be lavished upon us through faith in Christ. God poured out His justice on His Son 
thereby releasing His mercy for sinners like you and me. This should cause us to respond as Moses did in verse 8. What does it say? Toward the earth. And he worshipped. And he said, if now if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please, let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take us for your inheritance. Living faithfully as the people of God requires, back to my original quote, as the author says there, an expulsive power of a new affection. This requires an object more worthy of its attachment. So that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which had nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. In other words, for our hearts to be captured by the glory of God, our eyes must remain fixed upon the beauty of Christ. We must see God in all His glory. We must see God laid laid upon His Son for our sin. And we must see the steadfast covenant love of God in His grace and His mercy extended to us through Christ and His death upon the cross. As Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, He has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Living faithfully as the people of God demands desiring the presence of God by beholding the glory of God in Christ. We have the opportunity now to behold the glory of God in Christ through the taking of the supper in. If you, I'm going to take time in a minute. We're going to pray and we're going to reflect. So if you have not gotten a communion cup, do it now. It's a good time to do it. We said in the first half of the sermon to follow faithfully, follow God faithfully as His people, we have to want God, desire God. We need a new affection to help us do that. Where do we look? Where do we go to to find that? Christ. His person and His work upon the cross. I want us to reflect upon that before we take the supper today. I want us to reflect, we're actually going to take the supper individually today, as a body, but individually, so we'll take it during the song they're going to sing in just a moment. So I want you to reflect and pray. Take it yourself, or with those around you, or wherever you would like to do that. It's fine. But I want us to cause our hearts to, to pause. And Last week I, we were challenged to, 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 to be confronted with our idols, to be confronted with those things we tend to run to. That our, that our affections tend to grab hold to. We want to confront them and we want to confess them. 
But today I want us to find healing. Today I want us to find power to move beyond those. How do we do that? We, we need a new affection. We need Christ. We need to see Him again. Very clearly in what He's done for us. We deserve the wrath of God. You deserve the full justice of God, but it's not been given you who it's due. It's been given to Christ if you're a Christian. You don't deserve the mercy and forgiveness, the steadfast love of God. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But he's a, He abounds towards us and He's lavished it upon us in Christ. What could be greater than that? Today, confess your idols to Christ. Confess your weak affections for Christ. Look at Him today. He's made anew to live for Him. I'm going to pray. Andy and the team, they're going to come up, give us a little time to reflect. And then as we sing, you can take the supper. If you're a believer here today, we invite you to take the supper with us. If you're not a believer here today, we don't want you to check out. We want you to take part in this. We want you to be able to take the supper with us. Because we're saying Christ is everything for us. We want to see your sin. We want you to see Jesus. Cry out to Him in faith today. Confess your sin to Him. Cry out to Him for forgiveness. Father, we pause with a wafer and a little cup in our hand. Lord, without faith, without an honest heart before You, it's just a wafer and a cup. That's all it is. Do it quickly and move on. But God, by faith, we know this is a confession that this, in fact, is our life. We are sinners. We deserve nothing of Your grace, nothing of Your goodness to pass by us, nothing of Your love, steadfast love to abound to us. We deserve Your justice. But yet you've responded to us in your son. You've given us everything we need. So God, as we pray, as we reflect, and then as we take part in the supper, might we be reminded again that this simple act that we do reminds us of this beautiful reality that we, pay, that we partake in as believers. We belong to you. We're not vague children running around in the world. We're your kids. Because of your steadfast love towards us in Christ. Show us our sin. Let us look at our sin. But let us take a hundred looks at Christ. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray.